Well, hello. So glad that you could join us for the second of our deep dive into Mark podcasts. You can catch up if you like on chapter one. It has background, authorship and some other interesting things about the book of Mark uh, before looking at chapter two. I mean, before looking at chapter one, which is what it does. Uh, I'll always just intro the message with honour and credit given to my Bible college professor, Dr. Rick Watts, for these insights. It is simply my flavour that peeks through rather than any research that I've done. Dr. Rick Watts has a PhD from Cambridge, has lectured for many years at Regent in Vancouver and also around the world. He's also the most humble academic I have ever had the privilege of interacting with. We head into chapter two. In chapter one, we see the prophecy come to life from Isaiah 63. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come and do great and mighty things among us. We saw the heavens rent at the baptism and Jesus has started doing many mighty things. It does not automatically follow, unfortunately, that people will then receive who Jesus is. And with this chapter, we get the first of many controversies. There are five in all. And interestingly, there are five books in the Torah. Now, the Torah is just what Jews held as their identity document. It's the first five books of the Bible. If you hear someone talking about Torah or the Pentateuch, that's what they mean. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, these all speak to identity of the Jewish people, origin story, uh, how the people of Israel started. So we're now grafted into this origin story. The, the, this is our story now as Christians, how the people of Israel started, how they were enslaved and how they were brought out of slavery how they were given the law on how to relate to God and how to relate to each other. Between the age of five and 10, Jewish children were encouraged to know all the, his books off by heart. Awkward silence, cricket noises, tumbleweed rolls across the road. I, I could never, I mean, I don't want to say I could never, but I could never memorize the first five books of the Bible. But, but there you have it. So five books of Torah, Five controversial um, expectations expounded upon or interactions expounded upon. I'm not saying that that's necessarily intentional. That could be entirely coincidental. But it's interesting that Jesus is establishing a new kind of teaching that says the Torah can't give you life, but I can. And there's five and five. Just, you know, that's interesting. The aim of these messages is not, is not to go beyond the text. It's to point out some interesting things that we may not have seen before. We don't want to draw long bows and have everyone puzzling at the connection, but we do want to point out all those little um, fun facts and have fun speculating if it is intentional. So let's have a look. We're starting at chapter two and verse one. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Jesus' popularity is on the rise. People aren't locked into their homes on their iPads streaming content. If there's a commotion, everybody knows about it. Well, just even think in our towns today, we live in small enough places that if someone shows up and takes authority over evil spirits and over sickness, that word would get around quickly and we might even show up at the house. Now, this is a communal time. Everybody knows everybody. So they're all there. In verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. In this time in history, in that geography, the roofs were packed clay over wooden beams. So it would have taken some work to get a man-sized hole going. 
Plutarch, a Greek philosopher in the first century. Don't worry if you haven't heard of him. I hadn't either. The only Plutarch I knew was the games maker on Hunger Games. Wrote this of Greco-Roman world, uh, of the Greco-Roman world. People marked for death could not enter a house by the usual means, but had to climb up on the roof and lower themselves down a rope through an opening made in the roof. That's interesting here because of what Jesus does. A paralytic is not marked for death, but a sinner is. Let's keep reading verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. This scene is breathtaking for those of us who understand suffering. We can sometimes get to the point where we simply do not have any faith left for ourselves. And if we have people in our life who say, That's okay. I have enough faith for you. I trust in our great God for you. Oh, that's a beautiful picture. That's what these friends are doing. Jesus doesn't commend the man on his faith, but the friends on theirs. Contrast this with the man who threw himself before Jesus and begged him for healing, asking him if he was willing. These friends have not just assumed that Jesus is willing, they've bet the farm on it. They've put themselves bang smack in his way because they figure if they can get that close, things will happen. We don't trust in our great trust. We trust in his great character. Chapter 1 verse 15 says, repent and believe. Chapter 4 verse 40, he asks the disciples where they are putting their faith. In chapter 5 verse 34, he tells the woman with the issue of blood that her faith has healed her. In verse 36, he tells the father of the daughter who has just died, don't be afraid, just believe. In chapter 9 23, he tells the father of the demon possessed boy that all things are possible for him who believes. In chapter 10 verse 52, he tells blind Bartimaeus that his faith has healed him. And in chapter 11, verse 22, he says, have faith in God and you will get your mind blown of what God will do. May we be like these friends whose faith is firmly anchored in God. Let us believe, Lord. Let us grow in our belief. Help us, Lord, with our unbelief. And Jesus said, son, I don't know how the man would have reacted. Jesus at 30 was not old enough to be in any way fatherly to this man. But the claim Jesus is making is different. God always had a fatherly relationship to Israel. Moses said that the Lord said, Israel is my firstborn son. He says that to Pharaoh. So this comes through in the prophets. It comes through in the letters of the New Testament. And Jesus is making a claim here. He's not just throwing out the word son as a, a platitude or, you know, when, when someone who's 10 years younger than you says, what, do you, what, what, what was that, Dal? And you're like, no, you don't get to call me, Dal. And men, I think, sometimes feel like that about um, mate. Uh, or at least I've heard of one. He may have just been weird. Um, but Jesus is making a claim. He's not just saying something off the cuff. And this is where they start to get super offended. And, and also, if you're a sinner, how can you be God's son if that's the claim that Jesus is making? Well, hence the next statement, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven are unique to this account. It's not in the other gospels around the paralytic getting healed. But for those Jewish writers, that's inferred. Sin and sickness went hand in hand for these people. We see it with the question in John chapter 9, verse 2, where they asked, Who sinned that this man be born blind, him or his parents? Which raises the question, how did they think that he'd sinned enough to be born blind? Was he sinning in the womb? And Jesus responds in that case, well, neither. And our translations have, but this happened so that the glory of God would be revealed. But the original doesn't have, so that. 
the glory of God. And this isn't cause and effect. Jesus is just stating the new reality. Hey, hey, this man didn't sin. His parents didn't sin. It's not because of that. It's just this. But what will happen right now, God's going to get the glory because this man is getting healed. Let's stop arguing about causation and let's just get on with restoration. <laughs> yes, come on, church. Let's stop arguing about causation and let's just get on with restoration. Tweetable tweet, that one. I wish I was on Twitter. Uh, Jesus restores this man's relationship to God and shows that beautiful statement at the start of Mark is happening before their eyes. Isaiah 40 verse 3 about straight paths. But if we go to Isaiah chapter 40 verse 2, it says of Jerusalem that her sins have been paid for. Did that happen then? Definitely not. Was it about to happen now? Definitely yes. Listen to this beautiful verse from Isaiah chapter 44, verse 22. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Come on. That's who our God is and that's who Jesus is being on the earth. Now, tricky Ricky here because this will create a stir. This has massive ramifications. What happens when you realize that your sins are forgiven through Jesus? You don't have to go to temple anymore and offer sacrifices. That's to this point how you pay for your sins. The question becomes, why have a temple? And you can imagine the kind of distress that that teaching will cause. We're talking social, political, economic ramifications. Add to that, this is God's territory. Encroaching on God's ability to forgive sins is meaning that you're suggesting that you are somehow equal with God. Exactly, teachers of the law. Darn straight it is. Verse 6. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly, teachers of the law. Darn straight. Whoa, I just got deja vu. Just kidding. I was repeating myself for dramatic effect. Uh, Now, really, the teachers of the law's primary stated issue here is that of blasphemy. The thought as it affected them, how it affected them may have been there, but it was secondary. Their main concern was about blasphemy. Immediately Jesus, oh, we'll keep reading. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus knew their hearts. That's a statement of divinity, right? Right through Israel's scriptures in Samuel, in Psalms, in Kings, in Jeremiah, there's this assertion that God searches the hearts of mankind. And then he poses this weird question, which is easier, which is harder to say um, your sins are forgiven or to say take up your mat? Well, personally, I find both those statements equally hard. I'm really doing either of them, just walking around saying your sins are forgiven, take up your mat and walk. And, and, walk. and by really, I mean never. <laughs> I'm not ruling it out. I'm still getting a handle on my authority, but I'm just saying it's not a thing that I do. They are equally hard to carry out unless you have the power to carry them out, unless you have the authority to say them, which God does. And because Jesus is God, he does. And also, this is the first term, uh, first time in Mark that the term the Son of Man is used. So there's 
a whole lot of information on this term, the son of man, which I apologize to every smart person everywhere. It doesn't actually interest me, so I'm not going to go into it. But suffice it to say that it's a somewhat neutral expression that Jesus gets to define. If you want more info on it, send an email to info at thechapelcollective.com.au and I can get it to you, but I, I won't go into it here. Again, though... At this point, the people are amazed, awestruck, if you will, like all the fear and wonder in the first exodus. Unfortunately, just like them, it doesn't follow that they believe and we can feel so frustrated at this. I know I do, but I need the grace of God every day of my life, so I'd better get about extending it too. Next, from verse 13 to 17, we have the calling of Levi, which was covered in the first Sunday service we did. Uh, so it's there on the podcast if you want to go listen to it, but I just have to read out verse 17. <sighs> just everyone pause, take a breath. Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I read that because I love to remind myself that he called me a sinner. It is nothing to do with anything I have done, and I can trust in his righteousness to keep me all the days of my life. I am so grateful for his salvation. I am so grateful that he didn't just come for the righteous, but he came for the sinners like me and the sinners like you. Okay. <laughs> um, well, in the message, Mark part one, which is on the podcast, we went all the way down to verse 22. So we won't spend a great deal of time here, but it's a teaching that's saying I'm doing something new here. And if you don't get on board with it, you won't be able to stand it. It's the thought that it's not both and, it's either or. These two ways of living, the old Torah or what I'm ushering in, and they're mutually destructive. You can't hold to both. So verse 23, it says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields. Going through the cornfields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Sabbath, after talking about fasting, is a natural progression. And also following talking about purity, um, with sitting down to eat with a Levi, and talking about forgiveness of sins. These are big things here. The, you know, fasting uh, is totally um, part of their identity and so is keeping Sabbath. It, keeping Sabbath is part of their creation story. It speaks of trust in Yahweh and keeping it is being prophetic about his return to them. Now Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 25 says under and this is under the miscellaneous laws section if you ever want to just you know wonder about life look through Leviticus and Deuteronomy just at all the headings that say laws about um, the law of torts, law about property, laws about covetousness laws about uh, bodily do, I don't know what are they called bodily fluids laws about gross stuff it's all there laws about rashes anyway here it's laws about miscellaneous laws um, it says if you enter the neighbor's cornfield sorry about that little diversion you may pick the ears with your hands but you must not put a sickle to his standing corn so Jesus could have simply quoted Torah back to them and said, my disciples are just doing what it says you're allowed to do in Deuteronomy chapter 23, 25, which he would not have said because chapters didn't come in until I think the 11th century. So he would have said what, like it says in Deuteronomy, uh, 
that that it's okay to do this and they might have said yes but that's that yes that is lawful but that's work on the sabbath and they could have gotten into this whole back and forth debate on torah but jesus takes a different route jesus strikes them instead at the heart of their hypocrisy he tells the story about king david back in the day who ate the showbread when he was hungry and even shared it with his mates. He's saying, you'll make an exception for David, the, 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 our wonderful King David, our patriarch, when he flat out sins, but you'll point the finger at my disciples who are doing what is actually allowable. He's saying, you've made keeping the law the most important thing, but the law isn't made in God's image. People are. So it follows that people are more important than the law. And the closing words take it up another level. It says... Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Boom. Bye, Felicia. Lord of the Sabbath. This is the second time that Lord is used. Um, And let's remember, Lord is not Lord Duncanworth from Falconbridge Estate, like we're used to it. Lord is Yahweh. And the first time in Mark that it's used, it's quoting from Isaiah, prepare the way of the Lord. And now he's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. But guess who owns the Sabbath? Yahweh owns the Sabbath. And Jesus is making all the claims. Yes, Jesus, make those claims. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time he went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So we're in the synagogue again. A man needs rescuing rescuing again. Remember in chapter one, it was the man with the unclean spirit. And we have another Sabbath controversy. And our man has this hand that people would have looked upon with contempt and disdain. The evil king Jeroboam in their history was given a dried up and withered arm in judgment. The land was dried up and withered through judgment because of their wickedness. And people with a physical defect were not meant to be in the synagogue. Not because God doesn't like people with disabilities. We'd all be in trouble on some level. But the temple is where God's presence is meant to dwell. And physical defects are the result of our fallen world. So it's like rubbing God's face in our rebellion. Perhaps this man has been planted to trap Jesus. If he doesn't heal, he doesn't care about the people. If he does, he doesn't care about Torah. But Jesus won't play their games. He says, mate, stand up in front of everyone. He wouldn't have said mate. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. He smoked them about forgiveness with the paralytic, about purity with Levi's party, about fasting, and now he's dealing with the Sabbath. This question shouldn't have even been a question. Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? Um, save it. No brainer. But they stay silent. They don't care about saving life. Life is always linked with doing good, but the Pharisees have unlinked it and have shown their true colors by doing so. And the anger and grief of Jesus is the same emotion of Yahweh with the people of the first Exodus. Psalm 78 verse 1 to 8 talks all about it. You can go and read it. Jesus wants to restore people to God's image. And this man, he's a person. Way beyond this lesson to Jesus, here is an image bearer of God that he can make whole again. 
Ironically, the Lord of the Sabbath brings life on the Sabbath while the guardians of righteousness join with the Herodians to plot his death. Quote unquote, Dr. Rick Watts. Beware of what you're making an idol. You can even make your holiness an idol. So chapter three continues with some geography on where people are coming from to see Jesus. They're far flung and Israel was always meant to be a light to the nations. Jesus is doing what he said he would do when he read from the scroll in Luke 4, proclaiming freedom, recovery of sight, releasing the oppressed, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. And again, we see him silencing the evil spirits as we talked about in chapter one. He's not engaging on their terms. They will bow to him. Then he names the apostles, 12 apostles. Jesus is reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel around himself. From now on, they will relate to Jesus, not Torah. We dealt with verse 20 to 30 in the first midweek study, a video that's available on the Home Bible Study button on the website. So we'll skip down to verse 31. Jesus has just redefined Israel and now he'll do the same with family. It's no longer about bloodlines. It's all about Jesus. When it says that it's his mother and his brothers, his sisters would not have come. Then sisters didn't make public accusations against brothers. It's the redefinition of how we are treated that Jesus ushers in also. Uh, so, So you might remember that a woman called Tamar was harshly treated by the family of Jacob. And rather than make public accusations, she has to wait until an accusation is made against her and then she can answer it. Mary is able to be there in this instance because, in an accusatory way because Joseph is dead and so now she's acting in his stead. She can act as the male because the male is gone. Jesus says, here are my mother and my brothers, referring to the people around him. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And personally as a woman, I like that he included sister because it didn't immediately follow. He says, "Where, who are my mother and brothers? Because they're the ones who have come to accuse him. He includes sister. He's making a broad strokes, inclusive statement, not just the mother being able to have the right of acting as a male once they've gone. And to me, this speaks of the expectation of those who will learn at the feet of the rabbi, previously reserved only for males and now for everyone. We are blessed church to be this side of Jesus, able to witness the restorative new wineskin that he established and asks us to be a part of establishing. I'll catch you in chapter four drops.